Thank you, Priscilla, and welcome to all of you. There must be a few, must be a few people traveling places because uh, we're a little bit empty this morning. But anyway, welcome to those of you that are here with us worshiping and those of you who are online worshiping with us also. We know that that happens, and so we appreciate uh, um, that also. And But most really super appreciate the fact that we get to worship together here in person. Hopefully you all received the bulletin. You know the activities of the church. These are busy times for the church with all of our uh, uh, normal activities going on. The only thing I'll highlight is uh, the youth are having a bonfire on the 30th, and the men's are going to have a BBB in November. And so those are all in your, uh, in your bulletin. Oh, okay, my, my bad. I should have highlighted that, Becky. The women's retreat is this weekend. Women's fall retreat in Rio Doso. We have to know today? Yes. Okay. If you're going to go, if you want to go, come up front, and Becky will uh, uh, be here to greet you and give you whatever information you need in terms of directions to, uh, to Rio Doso. And uh, we had some friends who traveled through there last week, and they said that the, uh, the fall leaf colors are, uh, are really beautiful right now, and so that should be a pleasant time. All right, if you want to um, open your Bibles to John chapter 13, we've got a number of verses to read here. And... I will do that. Well, starting in verse 22, it says, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. He, of course, is Jesus. Now there, were, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom, the, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought because Jesus had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy these things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. 
So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. God bless the reading of his word. Now let's pray together and then we'll sing together in our worship time. All right? Bow our heads. Father, we do thank you for this uh, opportunity to come and worship you. We begin by reading your word and knowing that this is the guide for us in, all, in our ways to live this day and every day thereafter. We trust your word. We trust that, Lord, our hearts, our spirits will be open to the word as it's sung to us and especially as it's preached to us today, that it might guide us in our everyday lives. Pray, Father, for all of those who are not here today, who might be traveling or ill or, or not able, just not able to be with us. I pray, Father, for whatever requirements they have, for healing, for the sickness, for travel, whatever those needs are, Lord. We pray for those who are not here with us today. Pray also, Lord, for this service. May it be honoring and glory, bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ and his name alone. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us? Time of worship.
Whatever my lot 
difficile. Well, good morning. Children, you guys can go to Children's Church. We do have a number of folks traveling this week, and that's how it goes. We got a lot of large families in church, so when they travel, it's a lot of people. So we have a number of those traveling. Pray for them, uh, for success and what they're traveling to do and all that, and that they get us to return safely. Now, we're going to continue here in 1 John, and this is a good number of verses here. And I think, Steve, I'm sorry, I think uh, there must have been a typo. It wasn't supposed to be quite that long, but you did a, a good job reading that long scripture reading there. Yeah, yeah, he's, you can see he's kind of a drama queen about it sometimes, but well, that's all right. We, we love him anyway, and, uh, but thank you for that. That happens to me occasionally. You guys know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I'm not perfect, right? When it comes to typing, my typing has gotten worse. Um, please stop switching lights on and off, okay? All right, I'm not going to ask again. I just don't want the lights messed with, please. All right, so we're in 1 John chapter 2. We're talking about fellowship, right? So we understand that fellowship is something that believers experience, right? That we can have this life that is free of discipline by benefit of abiding in Christ, right? This is not a discussion about who gets to go to heaven when they die and who doesn't. This is a discussion for people that are within the church, then are believers in Jesus Christ who know for a fact that they are going to heaven when they die, because they can know that, simply having received the gift of eternal life. Uh, they can live a life that is free from discipline, correction, right? You already live a life that is free from judicial penalty by definition. That's who you are in Christ. God disciplines His children, Right? which is not always a pleasant thing, but it is always a positive thing. You need to distinguish between those two things, right? That's, that's actually part of being a grown-up, right? I have to have that discussion with my sons. As they look at their trajectory of their lives, son, there are lots of things in your life that are going to be positive that are not necessarily going to be pleasant. And you have to be willing to engage in unpleasantness in order to achieve the positive result, period, no exceptions. So we need to allow God that freedom, right, in our minds. God's going to do it anyway. You might as well get on the same page with Him and understand the nature of discipline in our lives. So when we sin, particularly against each other, that we need to confess those sins, right? We distinguish between confessing sin and confessing, confessing sins, right? And John is very particular. It is not an excuse. Like when you speak sharply to somebody. Maybe one or two of you have said something you shouldn't have said to somebody else. Once. I'm the only one. Bill, okay, we got one and two honest people here in our church today. And when, when you do that, right, you don't confess that by saying, y'all, you know what? I'm a sinner. Well, that's garbage. That sounds like an excuse, isn't it? That's an excuse. I'm a sinner. Get over it is what you mean. Confessing a sin, I know what I did was a sin, and it offended you, rightfully so. 
I confess that. That's the nature of confession, saying what God says about it, not making it into an excuse. And so we need to do that. Remember that we have it as a non-judicial environment. We are freed from the penalty of that, but the confession relieves us of the discipline, the corrective discipline for that, and we are restored to that life free of discipline. And then John says, right, that you need to abide in order to experience joy, right? We defined abide. It's remarkable how many things, how many words we have to define in First John because they are assumed, right? Abiding for the believer is to rest in who I am, right? It's a cessation from doubt as to my identity in Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ, Paul says that you are in him, that is your identity, that's how Paul uses that phrase. You rest in who you are and do what he says to do. Abide. You don't have to be responsible for the results or the successes or the victories. You're responsible to obey. Rest in who I am. I no longer have to earn favor, but I am obedient and trusting God for the results and the consequences of what comes, right? And so John is talking to them, and he says, this is relevant to everybody, right? That was the part I'm talking to you, sons, you fathers, you children, Nobody's excluded from this audience. Everybody needs to understand this truth of the nature of abiding and fellowship and joy in life. Nobody has succeeded entirely. It's relevant to everybody. And it was relevant particularly to his audience because they were all experiencing something, right? They were experiencing or had experienced, excuse me, probably better to describe it in the past. I think that's what had happened. People seceding, right? They were separating from the apostolic cohort. And John addressed that, and he said, guys, um, those are antichrists. You do not need to worry about having fellowship with people like that. You don't need to chase them. You may, be, you may have been friends with them. It may hurt not to. But you don't need to try to restore. You need to recognize who they are. There are people who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And John describes them very particularly. They were with us. They were not of us. They went out from us so that they could be outed, (laughs) literally outed, recognized for who they are. They needed to be identified, right, but not pursued. Not pursued to attack them, not pursued to restore them, not pursued, period. They may identify, right? He says that's the evidence. The key of that is you need to recognize where you are in the world that is passing away. It is being pushed out. It is being passed away. The world is passing away. Therefore, you should not waste time and effort and resources loving the world. It's the last relevant time period to the church as far as participation goes, right? We're going to participate in eternity, but the opportunities that you have, that first John was created uh, and written and sent, revealed to do, is this is the last hour, this is the last time. And I say that because you are not going to be, have to, to be told to not hate your brother in eternity, right? You're not going to have to be told to abide in Christ in eternity. You are going to abide in Christ in eternity. You're going to rest in who you are and do what he says to do forever that's going to be how it is. But in the church now, in the world that is passing away, that is where the admonition is relevant. And this is the last hour. 
And we understand, right, that there are, there are lies and there is truth. We don't ask the question, what is your truth at El Paso Bible Church? Right? We don't care what your truth is. I don't care what your truth is. And probably it shouldn't start a conversation that way with me. We care what truth is. And John identifies it. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's a symbiotic relationship here to this doctrine. The truth is in Jesus Christ. That is truth. And understanding that truth gains you the Father. Believing in you and in Christ on our behalf. Believing justifies us before the Father and grants us right standing before Him. So he says that whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Let that remain. Let it dwell. Let it do its work in yourself. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So in that, that narrow verse, right, he alleviates us from a responsibility that the world tries to impress upon us, right? We don't need to innovate. We don't need to innovate what it is to be right with Jesus. We don't need to innovate what it means to abide. We do not have to come up with something new and sexy to know what Jesus wants us to do. That's good for people like me, right? Who buy their clothes at tractor supply. I don't have to innovate. <laughs> I do that on purpose. It's the only place that has stuff my size, it seems like. You don't have to innovate. You simply abide. You abide what was from the beginning. And if someone doesn't do that, then they do not have the right standing with the Father. It's part and parcel. It's a package. One who confesses Jesus, homo right? Same word as confessing your sins, but confessing Jesus. To say about Jesus who, what Jesus says about Jesus, and that's important. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, not a way or a possibility or a hypothetical. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He didn't say, if you have seen the church, you have seen the Father. There's lots of things Jesus didn't say. And there's a line, right? Agreeing with Jesus' testimony about himself. And there was a line between those who had separated and those who had remained. And he's telling them, this is your responsibility. Your responsibility isn't to keep butts in the seats. Your responsibility is to recognize who you are and who they are. There's no severability. You've probably signed a million user contracts, right? And user license agreements. People say that that is the most frequent lie in all of humanity. I have read and understood the end user license agreement, right? In an end user license agreement, virtually always there's what's called a severability clause. And the severability clause says that even if any of anything is found unlawful here and any principle is struck down, it doesn't strike the whole contract. We've talked about this in the Mosaic Law. There is no severability clause in the Mosaic Law. Galatians tells us if we violate one principle, we're guilty of the whole thing. There's no severability clause when it comes to whether you have the Son and the Father. You get, the, you get them both. 
you understand them both. There's no severability there. Why does he, why does he need to repeat that? Even somebody like Martin Luther says, I, I, I teach justification by grace through faith every week because my congregation forgets it every week. And to some extent that is true. There's a lot of input in our lives that confuses and muddies the water. But I think John is saying it over and over and over because this is a serious problem for them. I don't know how many of you, the, the chances are that you have been in a church that has split. Right? And a lot of times church splits happen because of stupidity, not because of accurate distinctions made in the Bible or doctrine. It's a, it's a flesh fest, sometimes on both sides, at least on one side. This is, a, this is a doctrinal distinction that had to be made, right? There is no such thing as a painless split, is there? We have a lie in this world, an amicable divorce. Liar. If you can get amicably divorced, you should stay married. Right? Now, I'm not being a caveman. I am a caveman, but that's not a caveman principle. This is not an amicable divorce. There were hurt feelings. There are doubts. There is a lack of confidence. There is pain associated with that, even though it was right. Even though it was right. And that's something you can't say in the American church very frequently, <laughs> actually, that the splits were right. Usually it is over something foolish. But they had experienced at least what felt, and it was, a breach of trust, right? It, it may not have been exactly like that, but it was painful. And he's affirming for them that they are in the right. You are on the right side of this situation. You know, pastors have this problem also when they experience the same thing. And I, I say that most of you have probably experienced it. The only way to avoid it is if you are a dedicated church hopper. Because every five to seven years on average in the United States, a church faces an event that is at least potentially causing a split. It may not split over that event, but that's the kind of event that they experience about every seven years. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Guess what year I'm in? I focus on the 12 years instead of the seven years in this tenure. Things happen with regularity. You've probably experienced something you've had, so you at least know somebody that was. Pastors struggle with this, man, because in the middle of that, this, and I think this is what happens, you find people you thought were your friends, and they turn out to be your enemies. Literally, I mean, this is right, right? This doctrine is right. They, the split was right. And you identify people that you thought were your friends and they're your enemies. What effect does that have on you and your relationships with the people that remain? A lot of times, well, I don't know if I have any friends. It shakes you to the core about how you perceive of all of the relationships that have been friendly. <laughs> pastors do it, but it's not just pastors. We have that problem. All of us do when we experience that kind of a betrayal, right? This is, and what he is saying to them, listen, you guys are right. You are on the right side of this thing. And you need to be able to identify who left, rightfully so, 
so that you can understand that the people who remain are truly your friends and you can truly continue and carry on and abide with each other because those people aren't the world. Because you could kind of wonder, right? He said, the world is passing away. Don't love the world. Don't waste your time. But abide in love for the brethren. But they had just experienced a bunch of people they thought were the brethren, a bunch of friends that had left and become their enemies. You should not allow that to be an obstacle to abiding in love for the people who remain, who confess Jesus Christ, the truth about him. Though it hurts to experience those things around them. Does that make sense? Right? It's a restorative. John was reminding them to take those people at face value. It's almost directly opposite of how people usually take 1 John. When you get through 1 John, a lot of times what you have is a highly elevated sense of suspicion about people and their motivations and how their behavior doesn't line up with their profession. And that's not what John is saying. Recognize who is with you. Recognize those who are confessing Jesus Christ, who have the Son and the Father. There may be things you don't like about them, but they are your family and they are your friends on this basis. It's funny, every time we have a presidential election lately, you hear frequently, right, especially from conservatives, especially the last couple, you're not hiring a pastor, you're electing a president. You don't have to like him. And so I'm a pastor, I'm going, you know, actually, you don't have to like me either. That is not the basis for choosing what pastor you go to. That will lead you astray. I mean, I like to be liked. I'm human. But it's not strictly true. We do need to recognize who is who, though. Those who agree with Jesus' self-testimony, who confess him, say the things about him that he says about himself, are on the same footing as we are. Then he addresses the group as a whole. This is the promise to you. This is what you heard from the beginning. Abide in these things. Verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Now, some people don't like to call it that, and I understand what they're getting at. Because when we say that God is eternal, what do we mean? We mean that God has no beginning and no end. He is, he is eternal and so they'll say, well, that's not true. You weren't born eternal. You had a beginning. You were created. All other things are created. God himself is other and remains uncreated only, right? Everything else is created. And so it's not right to say exactly the same thing there. But Scripture does use the same vocabulary to describe God as he does describe the life that we have in Christ and the reason for that is that we, we mistake sometimes. We make a mistake. We think that eternal life just refers to interminability, right? It's just life that goes on forever. It's interminable. Doesn't that sound pleasant? How do we use the word interminable for your preaching, Pastor? Yeah, I know. It's an interminable lecture. It's an interminable school day. 
work day. It's interminable. I can't wait for it to end, but it, the Lord will not bless us with it ending. It won't stop. And unfortunately, that's, that's how we often talk about eternal life. It's as if the life that I'm leading now is just going to keep going forever. No, thank you. I mean, I, good life. I'm not arguing that. I don't want it forever. But it's a life that is of a quality of abundance like God has. That is one that you want to live forever. It's not just like Groundhog's Day. Some of y'all probably haven't even seen Groundhog's Day, have you? Bunch of little kids around here, man. You know, Groundhog's Day, he wakes up and has the same day over and over and over and over and over. Was there a movie called Live, Die, Repeat? Same principle. Live, die, repeat, over and over and over and over and over and over. Same experiences without end. And it's certainly not an interminable Dilbert comic strip where you just go to the office every day and deal with the same kooky boss and kooky friends and associates every day. It's an abundance. It's a life that we enjoy living forever. In a nutshell, John's already told us that. He said that the one who does the will of God abides forever. He rests in who he is and does what God wants him to do forever. And we're we're, we are able to engage in that quality of life now if we abide in the promise that God has given us. Abiding in the promise of that life. And he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just that it, as it has been taught you, you abide in him. It's a secondary purpose, right? John is writing so that we can have fellowship, and having fellowship, we can have a fullness of joy in our lives. In order to keep that from being impeded, he says, I don't want you to be deceived, because you can't be deceived and have joy. You can be deceived and have endorphins, right? You can be deceived and have a dopamine drop. You can be deceived and feel good, but you're not going to be deceived and have joy, because joy is fellowship right? It's abiding in Christ. It's abiding in the promise that we have. He doesn't want you to be deceived. And fabricated doctrine, such as the one that says, doctrine doesn't matter, just love Jesus, that kind of a thing. That's fabricated. It, it's, actually, it's weird. It's kind of self-defeating. Doctrine doesn't matter, only loving Jesus matters is a doctrine, right? But doctrine doesn't matter, just believe in Jesus. Fabricated doctrine only creates fabricated fellowship. It only produces fabricated joy, which is a, a fragile thing. We want the real thing, and John wanted the real thing for his readers. And he says something interesting to them. He says, the anointing which you have, in other words, you've been selected for a particular service, Right? Uh, people don't want to come down on hard on what it actually means to be anointed. It is not a, a feeling that you have. 
Uh, it may not even be a perception of power in your life. It's much more tangible than that. You were anointed for this place and this time. You were, you were given instructions to function in this environment. This is your anointing. You've been prepared for it. There were physical representations of this. Um, although it's, it's funny, when you go around, Jacob and I used to kind of comment about this when we go to churches and they have a little bottle of oil up on the altar and people would go up and anoint themselves, which is something I don't really see in Scripture. And sometimes you'll see them, they drip a couple of dribbles on their head. If you know how they anointed people with oil in the Bible, it was a whole bowl and somebody did it to you. It was supposed to run off your beard. That's how they anointed people with oil, right? It was unmistakable to anybody that saw it how they were anointed. And John is not, doesn't have a physical representation like that. He doesn't say you're anointed with oil for this, but you are chosen. So have no doubt about where you are, audience. He says, you have an anointing for this. You were selected. Their assignment hasn't changed, in other words, despite the people that had seceded from, their, from them, Right? You're still on task. You still have this job. And he tells them something. And again, this is another one. Someone says, well, Pastor, that sounds like you're out of a job. Because your anointing, he says to them, teaches you everything. You don't have any need of anyone to teach you. Your anointing teaches you about all things. Well, John is saying that to his audience. And John is saying that to his audience about a particular thing that they had experienced that they were equipped to handle because they had been anointed for that place and that time. It's a particular reference. He knew something about them. This isn't necessarily something that Scripture says about all believers. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says you should be teachers by now, but you're still drinking milk, babies. Don't you like that? We'd all love to have skin like babies, wouldn't we? But actual toddlers treat that as the worst insult that they could possibly chunk at you. You're a baby. You're a baby. But Scripture doesn't say that about all believers. It does not say that you have no need of being taught anything. It does not say that there's a substitute in your life for teaching you everything. This is a contextually dependent phrase. He's saying to his audience, you are mature enough and anointed enough, you've experienced enough, you know enough to handle all things relative to your context. It is stating, he's stating something that is true of his audience. It's accurate for them that they didn't need to be taught Additionally, about the difficulties that they were facing in the context that they were in, especially particularly that doctrine that they had heard from the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. They were well equipped. James would call it perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. They were well equipped. But that was a process that James told his writers to continually engage in and make sure that everybody comes to that point. They could rely on what they knew and what they were being taught, and they were well-equipped for that. So why did John write? If they knew everything, 
and anything they didn't know already, they could get taught by their anointing. We, we know what we know, right? We often say the opposite. We don't know what we don't know. We do know, to some extent, what we know. I think I could say that. We know what we know. What we don't know about what we know is whether it's sufficient, right? One of my professors at Dallas Seminary used to say this, and he was repeating something else. It was told to him at his graduation. I don't know what year that was. But it was back when Dallas Seminary was all male. So it was a while back. And he said, well, he said one of his favorite professors would tell him, gentlemen, when they hand you your Master of Theology degree, do not believe them. Do not believe them. In other words, don't rest on the laurels that you gained. You know something, but you don't know everything. And the things that you don't know will render what you do know insufficient. And so he's saying to them, he's writing to them, he said, you guys do know. You are equipped. You know what you need to know for this. And they needed to be confirmed in their understanding that it was sufficient for dealing with what was at hand. Bertrand Russell wrote once, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, and the wise people are so full of doubts. The fools and fanatics are so certain of themselves, and wise people are so full of doubts. Sometimes we need to be encouraged that what we know is enough. that we're equipped and prepared because knowing enough is still, doesn't keep us from feeling overwhelmed. But please don't come into my office and tell me, Pastor, I have no need of anyone to teach me anything because my anointing teaches me all things. Because I just told you what that meant, but that's okay. You know, I've had people come and tell me stuff like that before, and I offered to let them preach. No one has once taken me up on the offer. The idea being, you don't need anyone to teach you. You can be teachers yourselves. That's the idea out of Hebrews also. You ought to be teachers yourselves by now. People who are drinking milk, so to speak, can't teach anybody yet. I'm still being taught, and I'm still teaching in fact, pray for me. I have three, in a, three advanced Hebrew classes in a row between now and the end of June. And that's not exactly my, my favorite subject. But I'm still learning and still teaching as we go. But it's a question we sometimes get asked at a Bible church. Why does that, why does that matter? If people are feeling impolite, they might say something. Why in blue blazes are you teaching that book of Deuteronomy? Or one person that was here for a couple of Sunday schools said, why aren't you teaching Jesus out of every lesson in the Bible? Because Jesus isn't in every lesson of the Bible. Period. I don't want to argue that. Okay. Go to the book of Kings, and you tell me what that's supposed to teach you about Jesus. 
teach about being God-awful, unfaithful kings, but Jesus isn't in that book, which happened to be where we were. But we get asked, why does it matter? It's a valid question, I think. Uh, but often the people that are asking that question really want the Bible to tell them which socks to buy and where to get their car or what part of town to live in or who to boycott. That's a big one. Who shouldn't I buy stuff from? Well, good luck buying something from somebody who's not a sinner. Seriously. Even Christian worship music. It's a valid question. And sometimes the answer biblically is, this is important because it's in God's Word and He revealed it. And just like I'm not responsible for victories or successes because of my obedience, I'm not responsible for your victories or your successes and you understanding the truth. But it doesn't return void and the Spirit will apply it to your life. And that's how I continue to do what I do in many cases. But this one isn't like that. In this case, there's an explicit purpose, right? Abide in Him. Now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, that's the purpose statement, so that when His parousia, when you're in His presence, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Now, a lot of people get upset here. Is there a potential at any point and you in, in, I keep banging that thing. For in your life as a believer, to lack confidence in his presence. Because John continues in this passage, and in this book, excuse me, in John chapter 3, he says that when we see him, we will be like him. Because then we will see him as he truly is. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. When we see him, we will be like him, for then we shall see him as he truly is. By the way, that means that there will be a momentary, at least, event in which we are not like him because we haven't seen him yet, but his appearing is available. He's there. And a lot of people who don't like this kind of phrasing make a pretty critical error, and that is that they start with the presumption that there is no longer any kind of judgment exercised on a believer in Jesus Christ ever again. And the Bible simply doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that. There is no judicial penalty exacted on the believer in Jesus Christ. There is such a thing called the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's the we? Us. We. That pro that's what that pronoun means. Believers in Jesus Christ, along with the apostles themselves, are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they are going to be judged based on the way that they steward the gifts and the resources and the lives that they have in Christ. And some people say, well, and that's about how they start. That's just the great white throne. And John is just telling them they can't show up for the great white throne judgment. Can I read to you the, really the only passage that mentions a great white throne? So what is 1 John saying? 1 John is saying that you are going to appear before Jesus. Amen? 
We all agree. We're going to appear before Jesus. That's what the promise is, right? That we're going to be with him forever. We're going to be with him from that point forward. He says, impliedly, strongly says that you can either have confidence or not have confidence at his appearing in that moment in time. Let's look at the only description of the great white throne that we have explicitly. I just want to show you that they're not the same thing. Revelation 20, verse 11, says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. That's a metonymy for all creation fled away. And no place was found for them. They couldn't hide. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. I want you at least to understand that there is no one, no one, no one that stands before the great white throne that has the possibility for confidence. None. Believers don't show up there. They're judged on their deeds alone, not on the work that Christ has done, not on their identity in Christ, not who they are in Christ. That is foreign to Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. No one stands before the great white throne with any confidence. But John says that we can do that. When we abide in Christ, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we can be confident of the reward that Christ provides. Now, the distinction that we make, and I hope that you remember it between the two, there's a chronological difference of at least a thousand years between the two. That's pretty basic. But the great white throne is a judgment of the dead. The people who go there are dead. When they leave, they're dead. That's what I mean by that. Nobody shows up who isn't dead and nobody leaves alive. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of the living. Everyone is alive when they come and everybody is alive when they leave. Everyone. That's the dividing line. Aside from chronology, there are other ones. Nobody has confidence in the one. Some have confidence in the other. But all are alive when they leave. And all experience the blessings of eternal life. But not all receive the same reward. Because God's not a communist. And he is not unjust so as to forget your work. But he doesn't assign your work to other people. So we need to understand that. There's a potential here. It's for this purpose. And when we understand that abiding is not the same as justification, it's not. Abiding has two components. At its core is loving your brother, right, is the obedience that John is after. But it's resting in who I am and doing what Christ says to do. 
That gives us confidence that God rewards, Jesus Christ rewards our abiding behavior no matter what it costs in this life. And it is contingent. We make that distinction pretty regularly at El Paso Bible Church, but there are a whole lot of people out there that don't. They have a a theological ax to grind, right? They don't want to be explicit as to whether you could still possibly show up at the great white throne judgment if you don't behave. How do you not show up at the great white throne judgment? You get life. How do you get life? Believe in Jesus Christ. You don't show up at the great white throne if you're alive. Only the dead. And they're dead when they leave. Every believer shows up before the judgment seat of Christ. And no believer shows up at the great white throne. And it causes a lot of problems for people's interpretation to mix those two up. Because in the New Testament, I would argue that there is not, really not even a page that goes by in the New Testament that doesn't reference the Bema Seat experience for believers. John says that we can, abiding, have confidence at that judgment seat of Christ. Because we have been good stewards of the life that we have in Him. If we abide in that promise, One final verse. Not doing too bad time-wise. Started thinking this was going to get, that we were going to be here around dinner time. I didn't tell you that ahead of time. If you know that he is righteous, if you know that he is righteous, you know that all or everyone also who produces or makes righteousness is born of him. If you know he's righteous, do you know Jesus Christ is righteous? We don't need to clarify that. You already know that. The anoint- your anointing has taught you all things, right? Or Pastor Josh or something. You know that Jesus Christ is righteous. So we're going to treat that first class condition that way. Since you know that Christ is righteous, he says you can know something else. In other words, you don't have to go judging people's thoughts and hearts and motivation. That's God's business. You know that the one who produces righteousness, that's poieo, it's not practice. Practice has its own word, proso. This is poieo. You do righteousness. Is born of him. Now that's not shocking. Where does righteousness come from? Christ, because he's righteous. All righteousness comes from Christ. We are first clarifying it is not deceptive charade righteousness, right? It's the real thing from Christ, true righteousness. But it is something that you can see, right? That's where people get nuts with this. They think that they can tell who's going to heaven when they die and who's not based on their behavior. And we need to consider the last phrase, I think. Because we assume that we, mean, we know exactly what that means. I tell you, we spend a lot of time at El Paso Bible Church disambiguating references, right? We know that, that John doesn't use in him exactly the same way that Paul does. Paul uses it as identity language. John uses it as a power language, essentially. 
you're availing yourself of the power of Christ in your life. You are in Him. And we see this in Scripture, right? And I'll show you some examples here in a minute. But being born of Him, begotten of Him, Scripture usually says begotten when we're talking about what the Father does. It's begotten, ganao. And you need to understand, even in Scripture, we see the word ganao not talking about identity. In fact, that was the way a rabbi would talk about his disciple. You know, Jesus even said that. He said that the disciple is not greater than his master, but when he is fully trained, he will be like him. And that process, when it was completed, when the disciple was capable of taking on his own disciples, the rabbi would say of him, this is my son whom I have begotten. I'm his father. Paul said that about Philemon, by the way. He said it about Timothy. He said, These are my, this is my, well, Philemon. He said, I, I appeal to you for my son or my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Now, you know that's not his son, right? Not like Thaddeus is my son. I was watching a show a while back called The World's Toughest Prisons, I think it was. Again, not an endorsement. Not an endorsement. Can y'all tell? Okay, not an endorsement. All over the world. The world's toughest prisons. Dangerous, whatever. But in a lot of these prisons all over the world, people get married and have families and children in prison. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, I know how it happened. But how, how does that fly in the world's toughest prisons? But that's not what Paul's talking about, is it? He's talking about a discipleship relationship. He's saying Onesimus has grown up, and I am his father in this regard. He is now a mature disciple, and I'm appealing to you on his behalf. I have begotten him. 1 Corinthians 4.15, for if, Paul talking to the Corinth, he says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, is he saying he replaced God the Father? No. But in this discipleship relationship, they were his children. He begot them in that relationship. He said the same thing to Galatians, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This relationship. And what, in this context, what John is saying is, is, you know, you've had a split. You've had people secede from you. They are liars. They have a massive doctrinal demarcation between you and them. Do not treat the people who are still with you with suspicion. The people who are still with you that did not secede from you, who didn't agree with that doctrine, don't judge their motivations for doing the right things. They have a proclamation that they believe in Jesus. They confess in Jesus. Don't judge their actions to be other than righteousness that comes from Christ. If they're producing righteousness, then it's coming from Jesus. 
He doesn't even address the issue as to whether a believer might not produce righteous behavior. That's not even in the context here, the narrow context, right? It's a unique one. It's unique also because it doesn't say begotten of God or begotten of the Father, which is another reference. And John knew the difference in the Gospel of John. He talks about that, right? First John 1.13, that they were born of God, not born of man or not born of these other alternatives, the will of man. They were born of God and thus became children of God. But the pronoun here, begotten of him or born of him, is talking about Christ. Christ emulation by the disciple. As a rabbi would talk about his disciple, contrasting with those people who left. Abide in the promise of eternal life. The core command. And don't walk around in suspicion of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can abide in eternal life now through obedience and loving our brothers. And we thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you guys will stand, we'll finish the last song.